we say to America is be true to what you said on paper. If I lived in China or even Russia or any totalitarian country, maybe I could understand some of these illegal injunctions. Maybe I could understand the denial of certain basic First Amendment privileges because they haven't committed themselves to that over there. But somewhere I read of the freedom of assembly. Somewhere I read of the freedom of speech. Somewhere I read of the freedom of press. Somewhere I read that the greatness of America is the right to protest far right. So just as I say, we aren't going to let any dogs or water hoses turn us around. We aren't going to let any injunction turn us around. Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it really doesn't matter with me now. Because I've been to the mountaintop. Gentlemen of America, this is AJC Radio, where we bring the message of justice all around the globe. Tonight, we continue our journey uh, down the road with the IRP-5 story. And I'll tell you right now, folks, it gets more and more interesting uh, every week. We are reliving this nightmare, if you will, that took place uh, with the injustice suffered by the IRP-5 and we're going to deal with that tonight as we continue the steps to injustice and how we arrived at that point. I'm Lamont Banks along with Demetrius Harper, Kendrick Barnes, Dave Zapolo, Samson Riddle, William Williams, Clinton Stewart, Dennis Merritt, Tanique Wright, and David Banks, uh, all part of the team here at AJC Radio. I'll tell you now, folks, uh, feel free to dial into this show, 646-200-0628, 646-200-0628. As again, we continue uh, this story. Kendrick, as we go down this path tonight, uh, you being one of the RP5, uh, tell our folks how important it is we continue down this path until completion. Well, the reason is there's no, people have to understand that 
if they don't really combat the issue of the holes in the justice system, you're going to be in the situation where we were in. You don't know how bad it is until it's too late and it's on top of you. So this message is trying to get out there to warn people, to alert people. You have to take this seriously because someone you know or yourself, this could very well truly happen to. This is not an isolated incident. This happens every day across the United States where there's there's injustices that are passed off as justice. And as long as there's no light shown on it, it'll continue this way. So, the you know, we've gone through this story before. We went through many others. But it needs to be told because this is the formula that the government uses to basically convict who they want to, to control the justice system and say that it's justice when it's truly not. That's why this is so important we keep forward on this. No, absolutely right. And uh, the injustice is something, Dennis, uh, all of us kind of deal with. Uh, all of us at this table has dealt with. We know people who have dealt with it. Your thoughts on this show? Again, I agree with Kendrick. We have to keep this going. Uh, we got to let America know, don't wait till it's in your backyard. Don't wait till the injustice comes to you because it's coming to somebody in your family. But when you see the things that happen to the RP 5 I mean, we have to speak out against it. Uh, they ruin lives and, and, again, took lives. So if we don't push this and push it until people start really looking at our justice system for what it really is, we're going to continue to have problems. What attributes do you think that we see with the IRP-5 uh, as far as what they have lost during this whole process, what they've gained uh, as a result of fighting? What, what things did you see in this case that really left you kind of mind-boggled? Well, it was, it was their, their integrity. Uh, these guys, like I said, they were, uh, wow, I mean, pillars. Uh, and, and when I first came to the church and I met them, I never met a group of men that were so professional and so knowledgeable. And, 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 so, and they had plenty of morals. And then for the justice system to come back and uh, paint them as criminals, paint them uh, as uh, thieves, I mean, that just, that just got to me, you know, to, to treat them the way they got treated. But uh, the biggest thing I got out of it, they, they endured. Uh, and, and right now, I mean, they're still pushing. They're, they're sitting here today at this table uh, telling America that, hey, we need to get this justice system fixed. All righty, and well, well said. Uh, look, ladies and gentlemen, feel free to dial this show, 646-200-0628. 646-200-0628 as we get ready to take off on the next chapter of this journey. This is AJC Radio. We'll be right back. Do you know anyone who's been sent to prison who's innocent? The United States is experiencing record numbers of exonerations in cases where people were wrongfully convicted of crimes they did not commit. If you believe that no one should be sent to prison for crimes they didn't commit, there is something that you can do today. By remembering a just cause with a monthly, annual, or one-time donation, you can help in the fight against wrongful convictions. Call a just cause at 855 529-4252 or visit a-justcause.com and click the donate button. A just cause is a 501c3. Wrongful convictions are wrong. Let's be the voice of those who can't speak from behind the wall.
The United States of America incarcerates more people than any other country in the world. In fact, the U.S. hosts more prison inmates than all other developed nations combined. As of 2010, the world population was over 6.8 billion people, with an estimated 9.8 million in jail. This figure, compiled by the International Center for Prison Studies, refers both to individuals held in jail awaiting trial and inmates serving time after sentencing. So there are 9.8 million human beings on planet Earth living inside of cages that we know of. In 2010, the U.S. was home to about 309 million people, 4.5% of the world's total population, but housed 23% of the world's prisoners. So take a moment to think about what this means. It means we imprison more people than enormous autocratic countries like China. We imprison more people than Russia. Compared to the size of our population, our rate of imprisonment dwarfs our closest allies, like the United Kingdom, France, and Canada. As of 2010, there were over 1.6 million post-trial inmates serving sentences in America's state and federal facilities. This number does not include those being detained pre-trial or those on probation. The most unique feature of incarceration in America is the large and active role of our federal government. In most countries, crime is reacted to at the local or regional level, whereas the American government finances and legislates a significant portion of law enforcement at the national level. State governments still do their fair share of incarceration, though. California and Texas incarcerate more than other states with over 171,000 inmates each. Florida is a close third with over 103,000 prisoners. But no single state locks up more people than the federal government with over 208,000 inmates. Perhaps the nickname Land of the Free, Home of the Brave, should be updated. Though I suppose you need to be brave to endure the highest likelihood of incarceration the world has ever known. Prisons are not what we think about when we think of America, and they shouldn't have to be. A free nation shouldn't imprison so many people, and a fiscally responsible nation can't afford to. With close to $40 billion a year in state correctional spending, the financial costs are obvious and staggering alone. But the human costs are often underappreciated. 1.6 million fathers and mothers, brothers and sisters, sons and daughters of American families are incarcerated. It's time for people to realize that the criminal justice system in America is desperately in need of reform. There's a lot of mud when it rains here, and it makes it really hard to find food. There are car bombs every day. My mom worries about me when I go out. Every time I hear the alarm bell go off in school, I think it's an air raid. Sometimes I have nightmares about it. A lot of houses in our neighborhood have been destroyed. I like to close my ears and sing songs whenever the bombs come close. My dad says we have to leave, which makes me scared. I'm worried our new neighbors won't like us. What if they don't understand our religion? Because we don't speak the language, it might be hard for me to make friends. But I know it's all going to be okay. It's all going to be worth it. I just want my family to be safe. But these are not my words. These are not my words. These are not my words.
I wanted to be in the military since I was since I was a kid. I served in the United States Air Force. I served a total of 16 years. I was deployed uh, 13 times. On my second deployment, four bombs hit my vehicle. And at 19 years old, that's the first time I ever saw somebody die. Coming back, I was raging. I started having pretty horrible nightmares. I would wake up in the middle of the night, sweats. I started drinking a lot. I felt worthless. I guess I never recognized it in myself. Eventually, one day, I just walked into the VA hospital and said I'd like to see somebody. Don't suffer alone. You got to find that link with somebody that'll make you let it go. It all starts with going to the VA. There's a whole community of veterans that just want to help you out. It's for the guys who couldn't come back, so you owe it to them to live well, because they're not here with their families. Bart police officer who shot and killed a man. When I first saw the Oscar Grant footage, like a lot of people here in Oakland, I was outraged. As soon as I heard about it and I went online and I seen what had happened, tears came down my eyes. It was something that was very alarming as a police officer and as a citizen of Oakland. It was like such a blatant murder. You have a city in trauma. Anyone that's seen that and looks at it is in trauma. My hope is that people will express their concern with police brutality, but they will do so in constructive ways that don't include violence. We cannot perpetrate this cycle of harm and violence in this community. Because we do have to live here and they terrorize the city and it's only gonna make it worse for us. They killed our young you can protest, you can try to make a change, but there is a positive way you can do it. And make sure we let the police know and that we're aware that stuff ain't right out here. We're trying to fix it. In a way that is about using your voice for justice. And making Oakland a safer place for everyone to live and get along as one. Violence is not just Violence is not justice. Violence is not justice. Violence is not justice. Ladies and gentlemen, to AJC Radio tonight as we continue this journey of the IRP-5. It is an extensive one, and I'll tell you right now, the purpose is, is that others might understand and know the condition of the criminal justice system. Uh, and I say the system, and pardon me for the uh, error, uh, there is no justice uh, in the current system that we deal with. The IRP-5 suffered greatly as a result of corruption at the highest level from a U.S. attorney to the A uh, assistant U.S. attorney as well as federal judge Christine Arguello uh, and many other players included which you'll learn uh, even more about that on this show uh, and we're going to get into it. We got into a situation whereas uh, that these men were even blackballed as a result of these types of false charges uh, where they could not get work. Companies were really going against them before any conviction or anything ever came down. That's kind of how that kind of happened. Uh, we're going to get into that. What happened? What companies did that? How do you 
blackball individuals who have not been convicted of a crime, who simply have been accused of doing something, I tell you, that uh, simply was not criminal in any way. And then legally, how are you allowed to do such a thing? Because the, the whole thing that is said in our system is that the presumption of innocence goes with the defendant. You're presumed innocent even after being accused. That is a joke. You're presumed guilty from the time you enter a courtroom, from the time you get arrested in cases where they, you are. You are presumed guilty. That's why they hold you in a county jail. That's why you're forced to make bond. If the presumption of innocence is with me, why do I have to do any of those things? I should not have to. Demetrius. And Ma, to your point, uh, myself and uh, Dave worked at the same company, ULA. And in 2009, to your point, the presumption of innocence is a farce. It is a fantasy. It's a fallacy. Okay, because we were indicted in June, I think the second or third week of June. Uh, July 7th, uh, my company said we have a meeting at 4 o'clock, and Dave was support, uh, his company called him. And I already knew what was going on. And when they called me in the office, they said, we have to let you go for information in the public domain. And I said, please expound. What information do you mean in the public domain? Uh, what we have that you aren't indicted. I said, I've been proven anything. I haven't had my day in court. How can you let me go? And I forced this to legal, too, and I got no answer from their legal team. So you hadn't been indicted? We had been indicted, but we hadn't had our day in court convicted to, to of convict of, of any crime. crime. It was just an alleged, uh, which is an indictment. Uh, and they let us go. And then uh, on my story, six months later, the FBI, my boss called and said, Demetrius, I need to talk to you and said, someone sent me an anonymous email stating that uh, uh, you've been uh, indicted, and we want, and the recommendation was to let me go. So I had two jobs at the time, and they were trying to get me fired. They got me fired from one, and then they wanted to get the second one fired from. This is the, F, this is the uh, glorious FBI, which is a, uh, a lot of the agents, I won't say all, but a lot of the agents are crooked and just straight evil. All right, so they came with an intent to shut down anything that the RP5 were the process of uh, to support my family to support correct. the family to close out on on this deal Dave Zapolo come right to you David and Dave. when it came to me my consulting call company called me and said we heard that this this happened I said yeah it did is this going to affect my job they said have you been convicted I said no I said it's just an indictment and I didn't do what they said it shouldn't be a problem Two days later, that's when the, um, the company that I was working at had the same thing. Demetrius, Demetrius just said, I was called into a meeting with one of the um, executives. And I said, well, do you want to hear the story? No. You can, you can leave now. Wow. How many years were you there? I was there for almost three years and saved the company over $6 million in the time I was there. It's unbelievable. Um, Samson. No, I'm just sitting here listening to the, the, the story that these guys are telling. And, I mean, it's an absolute travesty. The fact of the matter is that just based on the the opinion of a, you know, a, an attorney, a judge, and an agency that they can completely destroy the lives of five men that had never had a criminal charge before. 
I mean, as Dennis alluded to earlier, I mean, these were these were men of character. These were men of like integrity. These were executives that were out there doing what they had to do. And on their first run in with the law, they get sent to prison for eight years. They get blackballed by every industry and every business that they want to be associated with for what? Because they didn't want to give their software away for free. I mean, that's ultimately what it's what it's coming down to because they didn't want to give it to a federal agency. They wanted to just sell it, and make money, and do what entrepreneurs do. They get blackballed and they get they get in prison. It is it makes no sense to me. Absolutely. And, and what what right does the FBI have to make phone calls to your current employer to say they're under investigation, they've been indicted? It it doesn't matter. You haven't been found guilty, but like you said. It's guilty until proven innocent in this country. David. And the reality is this is, the system is a fraud and we'll continue to beat that, beat that drum. The system's a fraud. Everybody, you look at the news again, they, they glorify police as, as these high integrity uh, individuals. We saw, I'm, and we didn't see this just from isolated individuals, we saw it repeatedly. There's another uh, instance, and we'll get into that at some time later, where the prosecutor called a, a police department that we were uh, engaged with uh, gaining a contract with and told them an indictment was coming. For what reason? Now, uh, because they were trying the sale of our software would have ruined the government's case, so they had to destroy that so they could continue their their witch hunt, their lynching. So the, the officials from, and this was the city of Philadelphia, called me and says, well, I, we heard from the prosecutor, he said an indictment uh, is going to be coming. He hadn't gotten an indictment yet, but again, it just goes to show you what this system is and how much people lie about what this system truly is. Uh, and they praise the system and all this stuff, and that is exactly the way, it's exactly the opposite. Absolutely. And when that happened, one of the things that really bothered me was the FBI, when they called Philadelphia, they said, well, I wouldn't do business with them because of this. It's like, who, who, what right do you have, again, to say, don't do business? Well, it was more than the FBI. They were involved in it, as well as uh, the, the, the prosecutor, Matthew Kirsch, I was told, called the city of Philadelphia personally personally and told them an indictment was coming. He didn't want us to be able to to do business. Look, if there had to be footwork on behalf of the U.S. Attorney's Office, um, if you, you either have a crime or you don't have one, you shouldn't have to pick up the phone and say, hey, an indictment is coming to stop business uh, in order to solidify your fraudulent case against the RP5. You understand, he wanted to prove our company was a fraud. So if we're doing business with one of the largest police departments in the in the country at the time it was the fourth largest, he certainly can't say our business was a fraud, he can't say our, our software was a fraud, and our dealings with, and the credit that we got extended to staffing companies was, was a fraud. He couldn't do any of that. So in order to keep his case moving forward, I got to call and I got to scuttle their business. I got to undermine them at every at every angle so so we can we can put them in prison and get rid of them. Well, the problem you have with that 
is that once a prosecutor goes outside the role of a prosecutor, it is prosecutional misconduct. Once he does that, so once he made one phone call to one company, he was in violation of the law because that's prosecutional misconduct. You became somebody that made a phone call to a company. That's not the role of the prosecutor. The prosecutor's job is to gather evidence that supports his, so, his claim of a crime. He couldn't do it here, and he couldn't do it for one reason. No crime had been committed, therefore he went outside of his role to gather fraudulent information. But what he did was, it wasn't even about gathering information. He planted information in the mind of the employer. It's not about gathering now. It's about, let me leave this with you. And if I leave it with you, you're going to fire these guys. You're not going to do business with them. And guess what? I can solidify my case, which he failed to do anyway. But that was the intent of that. That that just goes to show you, if you you had actually had a case. That you wouldn't have had to do that. we had actually defrauded somebody. This was a witch hunt. That's so I have to, this was a setup, a winch, witch hunt, whatever you want to call it. I have to do what I can to bring these guys down and to get rid of their company who was competing against uh, some very large defense contractors and systems integrators. I'm one of them confident that big corporations uh, likely paid Matthew Kirsch. That's my view. Uh, and paid the, ju- the judges off. That's it. There's really no other conclusion that can be drawn when you really look at all the facts of the case from the district court judge to the appellate court. Well, it's, it's complete insanity. Well, and and, keep, and keep in mind, this happened over a four-year period of time. So the, the, the raid happened in 2005, this so-called indictment coming down four years later. right? So they have four years to work on this fraudulent makeup uh, of getting this to happen. For four years... They worked making calls after calls after calls everywhere we went to do business development to shut down that potential business. Well, whatever happened, Mr. Kirsch, David, you allude to, uh, was probably paid. Uh, I know he spent some money on alcohol. He came back to the proceedings with alcohol on his breath. Yes. Uh, Not the thing probably to do uh, as a U.S. attorney. Uh, But we looked the other way on that. People looked the other way. We don't, if I show up to court... With alcohol on my breath, they're going to take me into custody. Right. And they're going to deep. They're going to. They're going to make sure there's no alcohol in my system for 24 to 72 hours. Uh, not for Mr. Kirsch. Um, well, he's. And and Mont, keep in mind, we, we talked about it last week. David is doing uh, this business development with the city of Philadelphia, and he. How how does Matt Kirsch have this clairvoyancy about him to say an indictment's coming? This is after the 2007 grand jury that he did not get an indictment. So what in his power, what in his mind is going to say, well, I'm guaranteed an indictment is forthcoming. That tells you right there to the corruption, the lies, everything that uh, Dave uh, Zerpolo brought to to the grand jury to say this is what this is the information we want to read about IRP. He, how are you going to guarantee he guaranteed a, uh, an indictment? Well, which basically, he perjured himself with the companies he called because there was no such indictment at that point issued. Is that right? That would that he perjured himself. But he's an officer of the court. Nothing's done about it. And this is why, when you see the, the behavior of these people, 
and nothing is done, but the average person is going to go to jail or prison. Period. That's just how it falls. Clint, did you have something? Okay, will you? Yeah, I w- I'm sitting here thinking about it. You know, for him to do that is an admission that the company has legitimacy. For him to pick up the phone and say, I would not do business with these guys, that implies, number one, that they're legitimately trying to do business, and number two, they have a product to sell. They, you see what I'm saying? So for the, for him to pick that up is, a, is, in fact, an admission of guilt. He knew. He knew. So what he had to do, what, so if you think about it, this, and this is, for our listeners, I think they need to understand None of this stuff, A, none of the none of the stuff we're making up. This is legitimate, this is true, and this is what happened to these guys, their lives and their business. And it's documented. And it's documented. But to to the extent that a prosecutor would go to this level to slander and defame a company in an effort to win a case, he ruined lives. Eight years, these men will never get back. Their families were immediately impacted. I mean, you think about this. It's, it's. I guess I never really saw it that way, but that is, that is true. Oh, absolutely right. And uh, we're going to deal with that, uh, that truth. Tanik, you have some information. Uh, we're going to get on the other side of this break, really quick. Uh, really troubling information uh, that solidifies again the blackballing effect. Is that right, Miss Wright? Correct. On all of this stuff. Yes. Uh, We're going to deal with that as we, again, continue down this path uh, of this journey. 646 200 0628. 646 200 0628. This is ADC Radio. We'll be right back. Here are 50 white guys. Here are 50 black guys. Here's how many white guys can expect to go to prison in their lifetime. The chances amount to one out of 17. Now here's how many black guys can expect the same thing. The chances are one out of three. Why? Lots of reasons. It's complicated, but one thing is clear. There's racial bias at every level of the criminal justice system. When blacks and whites commit the same kind of crimes, blacks are more likely to be arrested. Once arrested, they're more likely to be convicted. Once convicted, they're more likely to serve longer sentences. Look at the numbers in America's so-called war on drugs. About 14% of American drug users are black, as are about a quarter of drug sellers. Yet blacks are 34% of the people arrested for drug crimes. And those convicted of drug crimes, 46% are black. By the time we factor in sentencing, there are actually more black drug offenders than white ones in state prison and in federal prison. In the end, the incarceration rate for drug crimes is 10 times higher for blacks than it is for whites. These are the facts. Racial disparity in America's war on drugs is one big reason that one out of three black men can expect to go to prison in their lifetime. Almost every day in the news, we hear stories about innocent people who are returning home after spending years in prison for crimes they did not commit. What you may not know is that their problems don't end once the limelight fades. For many wrongfully convicted individuals don't receive a penny for the injustice that they faced. Take the case of Floyd Bledsoe. He spent 16 years in a Kansas prison for a murder and rape he did not commit. 
And while Floyd was eventually exonerated, he lost everything. His family, his farm, and decades worth of income. Unfortunately, Floyd's story is not unique. Kansas, along with 17 other states, doesn't have a law to compensate wrongfully convicted individuals for the injustices they've suffered. And in states with compensation laws, many of those are woefully inadequate. We owe it to all the men and women in all 50 states to provide fair compensation to those who've suffered these injustices. Join me in urging our lawmakers to do the right thing by the wrongfully convicted. Go to innocenceproject.org to find out how you can help. How often does our justice system get it wrong, convicting innocent people of crimes they did not commit? A new project by the University of Michigan Law School and the Center for Wrongful Convictions at Northwestern University School of Law tries to answer that question. In the last 23 years, more than 2,000 people have been convicted of serious crimes and later exonerated, according to the National Registry of Exonerations. By far, the largest segment was almost 1,200 defendants falsely convicted because of large-scale patterns of police corruption, generally in drug and gun cases. Of the remaining 873 defendants exonerated, nearly half were wrongly convicted of murder, and of that group, 101 were sentenced to death. On average, it took more than 11 years for a conviction to be set aside. Why does the justice system get it wrong? In homicides, the biggest problem is perjury and false accusation, most often by supposed eyewitnesses. False convictions in adult rape cases are primarily based on mistakes by eyewitnesses, while false convictions in child sex abuse cases are often for fabricated crimes that never occurred. 2,000 exonerations may seem small in a nation with more than 2.3 million people behind bars, but there are far more false convictions than the report contains. Most false convictions are never formally challenged, and those convictions that are successfully overturned receive little or no attention from the media, according to the report's authors. Sergeant Michelle Garcia served meritoriously in Iraq and has the medals to prove it. Soon after leaving the Navy, Lieutenant Chris Scott found a job, a home, and started a family of his own. Corpsman Richard Stokely took the skills he learned in Vietnam and put them to good use as a paramedic. But soon after leaving the military, each of these veterans fell on hard times and faced homelessness. Even after Michelle lost all her savings, even after Chris wasn't able to pay his mortgage... And even after Richard battled alcoholism for years, they each reached out for help when they needed it most. A simple phone call put them in touch with a trained professional from the Department of Veterans Affairs. That call got Michelle a place to stay until she could afford one of her own, put Chris in touch with employment assistance, and found Richard a substance abuse program. These veterans are success stories not only for how they were able to help others while serving their country, but for how they were able to let others help them. If you know of or are a veteran in need, make the call. How, how is it that five executives 
and professionals become a target by the federal government to the point that their lives are turned upside down as they begin to seek after answers. And what are those answers to a troubled society in which 9-11 took place and thousands were killed as a result of law enforcement not sharing information. These men are known as the RP5, David Banks, Demetrius Harper, Kendrick Barnes, Dave Zapolo, and Clinton Stewart set out on a journey to keep the homeland safe and were thanked by the federal government with eight years of prison, not to include, but also to include the wrongful conviction of Luana Banks Clark, who is no longer with us. I believe as a result of those <coughs> actions, those behaviors that were simply clear crossing of the line. Tonight we continue the journey to what all happened after the raid of the RP5. Many things began to happen. Uh, Tanique Wright is going to share with us a little bit of some truth that uh, shows the black ball effect. Uh, in full force against these men. Tanique, go ahead. So the example I wanted to talk about was uh, in the summer of 2009, I worked for a company called Comcast. And I was in the HR department, and one of my jobs was to find technical individuals. And those were anywhere from intern all the way up to senior leaders. And as you, everybody knows, if they know the story, all these guys are you know, good at technical skills. And so I had submitted David Banks, uh, Demetrius Harper, Kendrick Barnes to multiple positions uh, within their roles. And uh, one of the feedbacks that come from Kendrick is that he had, he, the manager said he had liked them, the interview went well. So the senior director, who at the time, uh, his name was Wei Lee, had come to Colorado and I was gonna, uh, met him because he was actually uh, out of state. And I met him to discuss feedback. And when he came over to my desk to discuss his feedback, he actually went to an HR journalist who at the time had nothing to do with recruiting, and he starts talking about how uh, these individuals are convicted felons and why we shouldn't hire them at Comcast. Well, one, they're not convicted felons. An indictment is not the same thing as guilty. Some of your listeners might say, well, if you knew that they were indicted, why would you submit them to a role? Because Recruiting 101, HR 101, is... If a person has not been convicted of a crime, we can't run some, we don't know anything about a person's background. So if people call me up and say, hey, Tanique, I've applied for this position, and let's just say a person did commit a crime, I would still tell them to apply. I'm not a background company. So number one, if I tell a person who's a convicted, who is convicted to apply, why would I tell someone who's not convicted to, to not apply? It doesn't make any sense. Right. Um, and so like I said, uh, this manager had put on there, or had said that they were convicted felons. And through research, it actually came out that the word felon was actually written on Demetrius Harper's resume. And through... Um, felon? Yes, they actually wrote that. A felon... Without a conviction? Correct. And, and, and Lamont, keep in mind, I had worked there yes. for two years previously. So... All three of them, Kendrick, Demetrius, and David, had already had all worked on various contracts at Comcast. So there was not prior. a new background ran. This was based upon a phone call that was received. Information received, To say correct. that there was a coming indictment? 
No, this was after the indictment. After the indictment, but you were not a convicted felon. Exactly. Wow. And so through court records from a, de a deposition, one of the managers named Stephen, and I think I'm going to pronounce this correctly, Racky, who worked for Wei Lee, said through deposition that he received a article, or received an email with a link, and in the link, it basically did an article that talked about the guys being indicted. And because of that, they went on to uh, write on Demetrius resume, like I said, felon, and then on uh, Kendrick's resume, they wrote, do not interview. Isn't that illegal? Yes. During an HR, we were told you never write on a resume. You well, don't even put of that. The fact number. that you wrote somebody down as Correct. a felon. Right. Well, here's the thing, Not too. Not an accused felon. Right. You would never write that on your resume. And here's the thing. Let's say a person, again, did commit a crime. You applied to the job. We ran a background and you didn't do it. I never go back to the manager to say, oh, by the way, for example, Tanique committed a crime. I would say Tanique did not pass her background. I would never get into your confidential business, number one. So we always tell managers, you do not go and do Google searches. You do not go and read information because what you, you're reading is not what we're going to find. And if the guys, they would have ran a background on the guys, they would have not come up with anything. Why? Because an indictment is not a conviction. Well, here's the difference, and here's the society in which we live in. You don't have to be indicted or you don't have to be convicted. For someone to say, you know what, we're just not going to... You know, you have you have a pending case. They're not bound by law to say we have to give you the job. But that's what makes the system as crooked as it is. Because if I haven't been convicted of a crime, and I can go out today and say Dave Zapolo assaulted me. He punched me in the parking lot. I'd like to press charges. Do you know if that when they run you, and if say you were to be arrested for it, it shows that you've been arrested for assault. Not convicted. Companies, many times, they won't touch you because you have not the presumption of innocence. You've been charged or accused of a crime. But to go as far as to write the word felon on this gentleman's resume? And then uh, we lost count at how many deaths. Because, again, you got to remember this is 2009. This is before a lot of technology. That resume was handed off because they're not all interviewing for the Who same wrote managers. It? Who wrote it on there? Um, so it was either Wei Lee or Stephen Racky. We, don't we have, never got we don't to the, we don't know to, but Stephen Racky worked for Wei Lee. But I will say in this indictment, this is Steve being interviewed. He says that um, the reason why it was written on the resume was because some guy uh, – contacted this individual named Mark Skull, who was a manager at Comcast at the time, and he said, I'm not sure where he got it, I just know that he got an email that had a hyperlink, and he forwarded it to me, and I clicked on it, and it was information about these some of these three guys, some of them I had interviewed, and this was um, this was in the interview, and the email, and so I wrote on Ken, Ken Barnes' resume, do not interview him. So you so just receive a mysterious link, and you just decide to write on a resume and but pass they it know, out. But they know where the link came from. You know where the email came from, right? Well, and not in many cases, it was not because this was an ongoing thing. Every time we tried to go a job for myself, uh, I would talk to a recruiter. My skills spoke for itself. Uh, myself, Kendrick, and the others. They were uh, the background. 
uh, but we had a good name in, in the Denver community mm -hmm. for IT and uh, highly professional in the Oracle arena. So they would have links or an email that said, do not hire this person. And people would show, show it, it would be a, an anonymous link, like mm -hmm. Tanique said, or someone would just say, I'm interviewing for a position. They'd call me back in two days and said, hey, I got some mysterious email with no all oh, the headings sticking which, out. Which is, which is hard to believe that was anonymous. You're just going to get an anonymous email while I'm opening it up. So you know it. They, they know who it was. They just never tell us who you met. I mean, look, look. Just cut through the chase. Uh, this is not anonymous. This was from the top down, and it started at the top. Whoever was involved with, and how did they know the the coming and goings of positions yeah. that were being applied for? And to the point where now we have another email. Saying don't hide. Well, how do you know he's applying for a job? Well, Avant, to this point, uh, we've had several, and this is for me. I would be on the phone, and I kid you not, I'd hear a click, like a, a recorder or something. I, I cannot count the amount of times I've had that. And then once I get off, I say, hey, uh, Lamont, Tanique, have a good day. Appreciate your time. And I'd hear another click. Dave. Well, when you think about it, too, these people are clicking out to a website. They don't know if the information they're looking at is true. I mean, I look at just recently, I applied for a job, I got the job, I got the job offer in the mail, I accepted the job offer, then they did a Google search on my name and rescinded the offer. You, you, there wasn't a background check, that was a Google search. Now, the, in these instances, after the indictment, they received an email with a link. Again, you don't know if it's real or not, so you know that they trusted the person that sent the email to say, yes, this was accurate information. Well, it's because they tell people don't open emails from, that you're not aware of because it, there's viruses, different things that can cause havoc uh, on your computer system. How is it that these folks readily open the email lesson for some, someone to Dave's point. Look, this, trusted, David? this is how America works. I'm not talking about just the system. These are people not even attached to the system. But there's this uh, there's this circling it, it's, it's a very sick uh, depraved mindset of almost a people coming together in some way to destroy lives, almost like they like it. So you got you got this high-level executive at Comcast involved in it. You have another senior manager involved in it. You got people coming in from the outside. You got the FBI. Uh, you got the U.S. Attorney's Office. And all of these people are working together, both citizen and government, to bring you down. It's just like, well, uh, they said you did it, you're guilty. Um, it, it is, this is the American system. Don't let nobody fool you about uh, that you're guilt, you're innocent to proven guilty and that law enforcement are, are these uh, upstanding people. I'm sure there are some upstanding, but there's a lot of bad people in law enforcement. I'm sorry. We saw it across the board, up and down uh, <clears throat> the courts, uh, through, through, through uh, enforcement operations, uh, even into to, with court reporters, we saw it at every single level to the appellate court. The entire system is corrupt, 
and there's a back room. It's a front organization, and everything is happening in the back room to uh, to bring you down or to manipulate the law. And everybody's working together to make sure they protect each other and make sure you go down and, and they don't look bad. And this is yeah. in the government's playbook because their first goal is make it so that you can't afford a competent attorney. So they blackball you to make sure you can't have a job, keep your job. I mean, we even had instances where we, after we got raided, just people that worked at IRP Solutions, they were going to their neighbors, to their apartment complexes, telling them, oh, do you know that uh, these guys are criminals? Trying to basically affect their livelihood so where basically if you're all softened up so when the government says, hey, you want a plea deal, they expect you to say yes. Dennis, your thoughts? I agree. Uh, what they did was they, I mean, when, you, when you're that, when, when, you're, when you have, uh, when you're evil like that, I'm trying to pick the right word because to me it is evil. You know, what they did to these guys to go to their jobs and to, to make them again look like they, you know, had no integrity. They were worthless and they were just, just straight up uh, criminals. And this is the thing that we're trying to get out to America today. Don't believe that this justice system is all what they say it is. I agree so much with David. It is far from that. You're guilty until proven innocent. And if you're black, that's a definite. There's no doubt about it. So until people start, and, and it's so sad, as long as I've been on this show, the majority of the time that people spoke out was when it happened to them. But not until. But when it happened to them, they reached out to a, a just cause. But it's just so sad that it has to happen. Listen tonight, people. This is true. Everything you're hearing tonight is true. It, everything is it has, has some factual base to it. So please listen tonight and understand that this justice system that we have is not what you think it is. Well, it's all factual. There's nothing short of facts. Uh, in regards to the injustice suffered by these men, uh, to your point, Dennis, look, most people are going to feel a certain way until, again, it, it visits their front door. That's just the way it's going to work out. No matter how much you see in media, no how much you see or hear, people have this state of mind that we have the best system in the world. We do not. We do not. Dave. Well, when you look at this, it is the government's playbook, is put pressure on them on everything, not just jobs, but where they live. Because one of the things that I, I will never forget is, first of all, like Kendrick said, they talked to my neighbors. The FBI went and talked to my neighbors. But they also went to, they were going to serve me papers. They went to the office at the apartment complex. Well, they had already been to my apartment, so they knew where I lived. But they went to the office to find out where I lived. And when the agent was coming up to the door, I was standing on the deck watching him come. He made sure that his gun was visible to everybody around as they came up to the doors. Now, if I hadn't lived at that complex for years and years and they didn't know me, I would have been evicted after that. Oh, you're doing criminal activity. So they're trying to get people evicted so they have no home, so that they have no job, they have no way of supporting themselves or their family, and then they're going to beg for a deal so that all of this will go away. And this is prior to any conviction. This is prior to any conviction. As a matter of fact, the papers they were serving me were the indictment papers that had uh, come down the day before. 
And, and like I said, I stood on my deck and I watched him. He had his jacket around the gun so everybody could see the gun on his hip as he walked with the um, apartment manager up to my door. Wow. That should be, that's, that's just, that's what it is. Yeah, to Nick. So you had asked a question a while back who contacted Comcast. I believe it was the U.S. Attorney because during the, this whole process, I was asked by the head of HR had they contacted me about the guys. As if the U.S. Attorney yeah, contacted so, you. Yeah, so if he wasn't involved in this, why would that question even be asked? Well, no, why would the answer be what it is? If the answer is, hey, he, he never contacted me, well, you threw his name in the mix. So who else then is at the table? And for a federal lawsuit, I mean, excuse me, a federal crime, the buck stops with the United States Attorney. That's where it stops. Go ahead, Clint. Yeah, let's not uh, pass by too quick on the stuff that Dave is talking about because lies, uh, laws are being violated. Libel, stalking, harassment, intimidation, uh, going into bank accounts without uh, subpoena, right? I mean, just by flashing your, your gun. Show them your gun, show them your badge, lean over, give them the eye, and violate the citizens' uh, rights. No, absolutely right. Listen, ladies and gentlemen, this gets thicker as the plot thickens. We're going to be coming right back for the discussion of the next steps after the black ball. What happened next? As the RP5 began to hope for justice, but they would not find it. Why is that? A corrupt system. This is AJC Radio. We'll be right back. Let's just be honest. When we look across the street to the Supreme Court and we see equal justice under law, um, when you have drug laws so severely, disparately enforced against some groups, let's, let's take African Americans, for example, there's no difference between black and white marijuana usage or marijuana sales, in fact. But blacks are about 3.7 times more likely to be arrested for it. Uh, African Americans are more likely to get uh, mandatory minimums, are more likely about 13 to get 13% longer sentences, and has created these jagged disparities in incarceration. In my state, blacks are about 13, 14% of the population and make up over 60% of the prison population. And remember, the overwhelming majority of people we arrest in America are nonviolent offenders. Now you've got this, this disparity in the arrest, but that creates disparities that painfully fall all along the system. When you get arrested uh, for possession with intent to sell, do it in inner city, now you're within a school zone. So now you have faced an even higher mandatory minimum. Now you're 19 years old with a felony conviction, possession, intent to sell in a school zone. Forget even all that. If you just have a felony conviction for a possession, what do you face now? Thousands of collateral consequences that will dog you for the rest of your life. You can't get a Pell Grant. You can't get business licenses. You can't get a job. You're hungry, can't get food stamps. Uh, you need some place to live, you can't even get public housing. And what that does is created within our country concentrated areas where you have massive levels of men being incarcerated. You create a caste system in which people feel like they, there's no way out. And we're not doing anything as a society like we know we could do because there's tons of pilot programs that show 
if you help people when they are coming back from a nonviolent offense, that their recidivism rates go dramatically down. If you don't help them, what happens is, left with limited options, many people make a decision to go back into that world of, of narcotics sales. Uh, uh, what's more dangerous to society? Someone smoking marijuana in the privacy of their own home, or somebody going 30 miles over the speed limit, racing down a road in, in a community? What is more dangerous to society? But yet that teenager who makes a mistake for doing things the last three presidents admitted to doing, now they have a felony conviction because it's more likely they're gonna get caught. And for the rest of their life, they're 29, 39, 49, 59, they're still paying for a mistake they made as a teenager. Now that's not the kind of society uh, that I believe in, nor is it fiscally responsible, nor it's undermining their productivity, undermining their ability to take care of their family. This is so wrong that those conversations that I'm having with conservatives as well as uh, Democrats uh, are resonating. And so when you have people like Rand Paul standing up and talking about racial disparities in incarceration, this convergence in understanding uh, of fiscal conservatives, of Christian conservatives, of libertarians, shows me that this is a time of great hope for our country. And so I'm not gonna question people's motives. This is one of those issues like the civil rights movement in the 1960s, where it should pull all Americans together to say enough is enough. So most people don't understand the importance of exercising and eating right. Most people think it's about getting super buff or eating grass to keep that perfect bod, but to those who believe that are wrong. Exercising regularly and getting the right balance of nutritious food leads to a common diagnosis known as healthy. Now healthy may sound mainstream and boring, but it's real. It improves your immune system to prevent sickness, boosts self-confidence and controls body weight, gives you energy and improves your overall happiness. So next time you think that's not bad, think again and be the best you you can be. Let me tell you who to blame. Blame the boy lying at your feet, his body oozing life through the hole in his stomach where the bullet tore him apart. Blame him for challenging you, for not looking away and for not backing down when you pulled out the gun. Blame your mother for bringing you into this world when she was but a kid herself and for dragging you up, not bringing you up. Blame society for not giving you hope. Blame your father for not being there, the man who looked after himself instead of looking after you. Blame the gun in your hand for making you a target, for making you more likely to be picked on. Blame the dead boy, blame your mother, blame society, blame your father, blame the gun. Blame anyone but yourself for not being strong enough to put down the gun, to break the cycle. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to HAC Radio tonight. You know, it's interesting that what we hear in the mainstream media regarding our legal system, everywhere you turn, we have the best system in the world. 
We have the most incarcerated amount of people in the entire world. How do those facts stay out of the mouth of the mainstream media? How is it that rather than challenge the system and to stand against it and to support those that do, we find people that oppose this system demonized because they choose to speak out. That is a sad day for this country. The facts are the facts. The facts presented here, one case of thousands. It's clear what happened here. There are no responsibilities. No one is held accountable for what they did to these men. Eight years in prison. I can tell you right now from experience, eight years is a long time. A lot of pain behind the wall of prisons and county jails in this country, but these men were forced there for one reason. Absolutely nothing. That is the reason. David? I'd like to bear, it bears mentioning that we went to the media. The so-called media is supposed to be a check on government abuse, all this other type of stuff. They started uh, looking into the story then all of a sudden, every media organization in Denver just went silent. So who is the media? It's another front organization. Uh, you had, you had uh, five executives who fired their attorneys and were going pro bono, or uh, pro, uh, pro se rather, against the federal government on a 25-count indictment at the time. Didn't make one piece of news. When government puts something out on the raid, it gets into the news. Uh, we provide evidence of what the government did. Factual evidence, documented evidence. The media did absolutely nothing. All of these people are in the bed together. You always have your few exceptions that are interested in pursuing but but they have to answer to their superiors to their managers to their producers uh who ultimately make the decision not to run with the story or take a story on and those people are typically in the bed with the good old boy network the government the whole system is a is just a front and whether the media is in the back room the defense attorneys are in the back room with the government. The judges are in the back room. Everybody's in the back room creating scheming on how they're going to make sure this gets done and how they're going to support a wrongful conviction. That's the way the system works. I'm sorry. You can uh, talk to you turn blue. And now if you have, obviously, the stuff they put out front in many cases is when they actually have solid evidence on a person. So, so they put this out there and then they amplified that the police are out here doing all this great work well this guy obviously if he's on camera committing a crime or 
you have his blood and his hair and all this other type of stuff, those are easy cases. But what goes on the majority of the time is really, uh, it's really a scheme to bring people down, and it's uh, basically a cabal of people that are used to to uh, take people down on behalf of, of other people, the powerful and the rich. Well, what's insane to me about this, the to what end do you bring people down? These are people getting up, going to work every day, just like you. Has families. They have to take care of just like you. To what motivating factor do you just wake up and say, you know what, we don't have a case here, but we're going all in, man. Let's destroy these people. Somebody's getting paid. Yeah, there's money. There's money. I mean, that's that's why it says the love of money. Money, that's it. There's no other reason. If there's no other reason on this planet to get somebody to move on your behalf, it's monetary means. You can or you can wave enough money in somebody's face and they will do what you want them to do. They'll lie, they'll sell out their soul. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. If you can if you can ruin these guys' life, if you could take eight years of their of their life away and you you find you don't feel the level of guilt behind it, you don't feel some kind of conviction about it, it's money. And or they're trying to you piss off the wrong person. You piss what? off the wrong person. I know somebody in the US Attorney's Office. I know somebody in the FBI that can get after these guys. They, they really made me angry. Had nothing to do with a crime. You just offended the wrong person or you spoke truth to power or something along those lines and then they send the government after you. You see it on a regular basis. Dave. Well, one of the things you look at is you see that it's about getting you out of the way, no matter what. And you have the situation where David mentioned there was a newspaper article about the raid. Well, there was information in that newspaper article that was under seal. So the government and the, and the news organizations are in bed together, and they use that to put pressure on who they consider the criminal, and all of that works together. So when you try to get a story showing that the government is doing something wrong, they don't want to touch it. They don't want that to come out. Well, I think what's really... really sad to me we're talking about protecting the homeland we're talking about averting this nation from another attack as we have in the likes we have never seen before hit this country thousands of lives fathers sisters brothers children lost killed you're telling me that because of money, we choose to put our blindfold on to the lives that were lost and the people that have died at the hand of terror. But we say this is a patriotic nation. We're all together. We're in this together because we care. They'll get on TV. They'll say, listen, everybody went and prayed together after a tragedy. Everybody just started having a discussion or having a conversation after a tragedy. But when five men work tirelessly to develop something that has never been developed before, 
to help the safety of a nation. You're telling me that just doesn't count. That is as sick as it gets. The reality is these, well, these half the people, they just say the right thing. They don't care that 3,000 people die. Uh, you, I don't care if it's politicians. They act like they care about this. You hear people on TV act like they really care. Obviously, they don't really care. Um, if you can do this sort of, if prosecutors and judges can do this uh, scheme together, set up their little cabal to uh, put innocent people in prison, they could hardly care less about thousands of people dying. This is just who they are, but they're going to say the right thing. It's the right thing to say that, uh, man, it's such a tragedy. Uh, my heart breaks. I'm praying for the victims. These become routine cliches that you hear all the time. Uh, my heart goes out. Your heart's not going out to anybody. Uh, or talking about, man, such a terrible injustice, my heart goes out. It's simply not true, or you wouldn't be al allowing this stuff to happen. Well, I would say this, that in every facet of life, I would like to believe there are people perhaps with the best intentions, the best intentions to get something done, but they can't get it done. Uh, all of Congress can't get it. Unless Congress comes together, which they seem to have a very difficult time doing in situations. I have to believe in some points. It's kind of like, but the good many times, the, the good many times is hidden because it's a collective effort. And if I can't get point A to come on board with point B and C, I'm limited in what I can do. It to a point. Well, to a point, reality, yep. but those are the exceptions. Wait, no, no, no. I think that's where the problem comes in is, sure. The people who actually care are the exceptions. They're they're, they're not the norm. They're not the norm. Those Absolutely. are the exceptions. And so I'm never you're never gonna paint everybody with a broad brush. Right. But from what we saw, it's very easy to paint because we couldn't find anybody yep. that from the appellate court to the district court to leadership in the Department of Justice to U.S. Attorney John Walsh, who we waited on to present a proffer to uh, after Obama elected him, we thought uh, he would look at the case. All these people are the same. I, it, it, it's it's just hard to find those decent people that are actually in the system and concerned. And many times, by virtue of wanting to keep their job or not wanting to rock the boat, wanted to protect their own families, they just kind of, some of those people just kind of stay silent because this system will turn on them just the same. And, and hurt them because they stood with, because uh, somebody stood against them and the wrong they were doing. Well, that's a true point to the folks, to the mayor, uh, and I'm sorry, the U.S. attorney in Maryland, uh, or the state attorney uh, there who called the Maryland Police Department into question. You mean Marilyn Mosby? Uh, yes. And now they have targeted her uh, as if she's committed some crime, uh, not because she committed a crime, simply because she took a stand against police officers that were killing people. So to that, to that, David, to that point, uh, I bring, I mentioned that uh, in agreement with that. That you're in a tough situation, a very tough one, and 
uh, when it comes down to these, a lot of these people that can maybe try to make a difference, uh, their families, who knows what's going on, as you said, behind doors. Look, you're going to go along with us. Your, maybe your kid doesn't make it to college. Well, the maybe government this doesn't happen or whatever the case the is. The government goes after people's family. We saw it with yes. Luana Clark. Yes. Our sister. This is what they do. Yes. Yep. Samson. When, uh, as you were talking earlier, Lamont, I was just thinking about it. Like all you, all we're hearing about tonight is the strategic machine that we like to call the system. They systematically break you down. You know, we heard it. Like these, these gentlemen were blackballed. They were, I mean, everything that they, that the government could take away from them before they even went to trial. You know, they took. And to your point about, you know, is there a price on human life? Absolutely there is a price on human life. This country's colors are no longer red, white, and blue. I hate to break, break that to anybody that, that you know, still believes in, old, you know, the flag, old glory. But the fact of the matter is the colors of this country is straight green. And it depends on how much green can you bring to their coffers. That's what it matters about. The fact that these guys are on a, a, on a budget to receive well, you know, well shy of what that, that product was worth. Do you know the billions of dollars that were made by government officials because of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan? KBR, owned by one of our former vice president, made billions over there. Billions. So 4,000 lives in the United States versus billions of dollars? Of course they're going to write that off. They're going to say, like you said, they're going to say, oh, what a tragedy. They're going to hold hands, pray and sing Kumbaya. But at the end of the day, they're looking to line their pockets. That's what it boils down to. That's the truth. No, absolutely right. William. You know, I, I mean... I had to hop in here real quick because David had said something. And when you talk about the good people that suffered, these are good people that suffered. Because we've, we've covered this story and we talked about the beginning, the dream that happened. Started right after 9-11. Men dedicating their lives for us to have a safer country. Here we are, 20 plus years later, we're no better off as a country. And we've talked about this. But you literally think the fact that these men, good men, that had a, had a great dream, brought it to reality, and our judicial system tried to, really tried to kill it. They tried to kill it. They, they didn't, but they tried to. And what they suffered, these, this is, so this is what David said. You take it a collective group of people, good people, they're trying to do some good things, and how they, they meet resistance. They meet, they meet this underlying, you know, system of greed that just buys and sells. They buy and sell it like it's a commodity. And basically, that's what that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about the American dream, a dream that's built on betterment of our society and the safety of our society, which has not changed after 9-11, that the, the whole system turns on them, cannibalizes them, and it says, okay, I'm gonna take I'm gonna take eight years of your life. I don't care about your family. I don't care about anything else. Because we want we are trying to get in here. We want that software. We want the software. We want that that you came up with that we paid millions of dollars for virtual case file and other systems that we had had uh, government contracts out for. I mean, that's the reality that we're talking about. Cut our government has spent useless amounts of money got nothing for it and they could have <laughs> they could have got this software and it would have helped our country would have made our country safer but it didn't and that's really what we're talking about you t- you sold out good people for money 
a tragedy. It really, really is. Dave, you had something? Yeah, well, what William was saying is all about money. When you look at, in 2011, Oracle settled a fraud case that they had where they defrauded the U.S. government hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars, and they settled that in pennies. Nobody went to jail for that, and it was real fraud. And who was this? Oracle. Really? Big, big company that works with the federal government. They defrauded the federal government hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars and settled it with cash on pe- pennies on the cash. So when you see things like that, you know the government goes after people that can't fight back. And they just want money. So that's what they were trying to do here. They're trying to save money by stealing the software rather than buying it. Well, I'll tell you what, it's one of those things, folks, that uh, is difficult at best, and it seems just unreal. But the reality is, as David alluded to and all of you guys have, is that this was a clear reality. Um, How do you come back from that? How does a system recover from such horrible actions? And unless you've been behind the wall, or your family member has, you don't begin to understand the horror behind that wall. But in this case, what makes it more horrific, all of the RP5 were innocent. Well, I want to go ahead and read a little bit of what Dave was talking about, where Oracle... Paid, agreed to pay the pay United States $199.5 million resolve false claims act lawsuit. The settlement resolves allegations that in contract negotiations over the course of the contract administration, Oracle knowingly failed to meet its contractual obligations to provide the GSA with current, accurate, and complete information about its commercial sales practices, including discounts offered to other customers and that Oracle normally made false statements. This is false statements to the federal government about its sales practices and discounts. The set, settlement further resolves allegations that Oracle knowingly failed to comply with the price reduction clause by not disclosing to the GSA discounts Oracle gave to its commercial customers when they were higher than the discounts that Oracle had disclosed to the GSA by failing to pass those discounts on to the government uh, customers. And now if you listen to what the government said, this is what the government says about Oracle. Companies that engage in unlawful or fraudulent practices to secure government business undermine the integrity of the procurement process and create an unfair advantage against the majority of companies that are playing by the rules. Uh, Resolutions like this one, the largest false claim settlement in history, demonstrate our commitment to ensure taxpayers are not overpaying for the products and services they receive. So that just goes to show you, Oracle goes out, commits these crimes, these fraudulent activities against the government, uh, a multi-billion dollar international company, well, just pays a couple hundred million dollars and we'll we'll settle that. Nobody goes to jail. But David, did you say that said the largest... Yes. The largest case in history at that time. This was in 2000. This was in 2011. They settled that case. 2011, the largest fraudulent case in history. At that time. At that's, that time. That's what's reported by. Uh, actually, it's the Department of Justice Office of Public Affairs press release. So you can be big enough 
you're not touched, guilty or not. But you can be innocent enough and be railroaded. Does that make any sense to anybody? That doesn't make any sense. Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to take a quick break. Um, this is absolutely overwhelming, is what it is. You can hear this story a thousand times. The response is the same. Injustice on the front steps of a nation. This is AJC Radio. We'll be right back. Mass incarceration means that we've got a very high rate of incarceration historically, comparatively. And the other thing is the rate of incarceration is so high, so socially concentrated, that we're no longer incarcerating the individual, but we're incarcerating whole social groups. The rate of incarceration now is about five times higher than it was historically. Historically it was 100 per 100,000, now it's about 500 per 100,000. If we look at prison, if we add jail to that, it's about 700 per 100,000. Nowhere in the world incarcerates as much as we do. We've seen extremely high rates of exposure to the criminal justice system for African-American men with very low levels of schooling. So if we think about black men who were born in the late 1970s and who were growing up through the American prison boom of the 1980s and the 1990s, the chances that they're going to serve time in state or federal prison if they dropped out of high school is about 70%. So going to prison for that group of black men with very low levels of schooling, that's become a normal life event. And that's really only happened in the last 10 years. We're at this point now where there's about 1.2 million African-American children with a parent who's incarcerated. And that's about one in nine. The research shows the kids who experience parental incarceration have diminished school achievement, they have behavioral problems, depressive symptoms, acting out. And there's also evidence that these kinds of negative effects associated with parental incarceration are concentrated more among boys than among girls. And there's a very real risk here that incarceration becomes an inherited trait. The underlying issue is we've chosen prison as a way to respond to that problem of crime. And there are a whole variety of ways that we could have chosen to respond to that problem of crime. We've chosen the response of the deprivation of liberty. And we've chosen the response of the deprivation of liberty for a historically aggrieved group whose liberty in the United States was never firmly established to begin with. What do you need? I need a hard worker. Good. I've got two part-time jobs and to help my parents pay the bills. I need problem-solving skills. I got through high school without a car, a phone, or a computer. No college degree, though. Not yet, but 
Life's taught me a lot, and I'm ready for more. Well, you're not the typical kind of candidate that I hire. But you are exactly what I'm looking for. Your company could be missing out on the candidates it needs most. Learn how to find, cultivate, and train a great pool of untapped talent at gradsoflife.org. Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech. Do you know what this means? Do you? It means you can voice your opinion without censorship or restraint. It means you can say nothing at all. It means you can debate, protest, question, contribute, whenever, wherever. Take it. Embrace it. Say it out loud. For a kid whose mom or dad is in prison, life is tough. Now add a wrongful conviction to that, life just got a little bit tougher. Trying to explain to friends why mom or dad is not at the school play or at the ball game is something that no kid should ever be faced with. Especially if mom or dad is innocent. Ladies and gentlemen, get involved today to stop the epidemic of wrongful convictions by remembering a just cause with a monthly, annual, or one-time donation. You can help in the fight against wrongful convictions. Call a just cause today. 1-855-529-4252. We seek justice for the children as they go to bed at night and mom's not there, dad's not in the other room to make them feel safe. Not because dad or mom did anything wrong, because justice could not be found. Join us for the children, for they truly are our future. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AJC Radio. The phone number is 646-200-0628, 646-200-0628. As we are uh, coming up on uh, close to the final segment here as we continue this discussion uh, in regards to the IRP5. That is David Banks, Demetrius Harper, Kendrick Barnes, Dave Zapolo, and Clinton Stewart. I'll tell you right now, folks, what you've heard tonight is not even beginning to scratch the surface of injustice suffered uh, by the IRP-5. Their families, their church community, uh, you just don't have any idea. It is our job to paint that picture and to take you on this journey with us uh, as we continue now uh, going forward. David, as we got it past the raid, we've gone past that. Uh, we've gone past the blackballing situation that happened. Uh, the actions of the FBI, the actions of the uh, U.S. Attorney. Um, at that time, John Walsh, a U.S. Attorney, Matthew Kirsch, is that correct? Uh, That's correct. These people setting out on a mission to destroy the lives of these men uh, is absolutely heart-wrenching. Uh, ultimately, um, 
being, I believe, to be complicit uh, in the death of Luana Banks-Clark, as we shared a week ago uh, on this show. Um, I'm going to play a clip right now from a, uh, a gentleman by the name of uh, Ronald Huff uh, asking the question why the RP, uh, why the RP6 were in prison uh, and what exactly happened with that. Uh, people were asking questions before uh, AJC took up the calls to start speaking out as well. People are wondering what in the world is going on here. Simply not AJC and it just calls. People are talking everywhere. Let's play the clip. The fundamental question I had is why it ended up in the criminal justice system to begin with. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. Even if the allegations were correct, it belonged in the civil system, not in the criminal system. So there's, a, there's an example here of overreach by the prosecutors, uh, I believe, in my opinion. In that case that uh, you're referring to, uh, I just don't even think it belongs in the ju criminal justice system to begin with. And uh, certainly they shouldn't be two years languishing in prison uh, for, this, uh, for this allegation when, in fact, a lot of the facts that I know about the case suggest that they should not have been in, in prison. They were traveling as businessmen, respected businessmen, traveling even abroad, uh, yes. and never did, never were an escape risk. And so why they couldn't be out on bail, or at the very least handled through some type of electronic monitoring or something, why they have to be in prison, I have no idea. Martin, and, as a retired judge Sor Sorokin uh, pointed out when he analyzed the case, you know, when you look at this logically, um, they're basically just saying that they there there was no transcript that included that, and so therefore, you know, too bad you can't get it. Well, there you have it. Everybody's asking the question. And this was two years he called languishing in prison, not knowing another six would be added to that number. Uh, and it seems pretty, pretty clear-cut and dry from what their position is, is that what are we doing here? Why are we even having this conversation? And to the point about H. Lee Zarek and uh, David and to all of you guys, the point about the missing transcript. Now, David, where do we go from here? Because the transcript is going to come up. Uh, that happened during trial, yes. That happened during trial. We're going to get to that to that point. Yeah, where we're headed next is as we approach, uh, we got into a lot of stuff tonight about things that were going on in the, uh, last week was going on in the grand jury. Now we're actually approaching, and we've, we've already went past the indictment somewhat. Uh, and after the indictment, there were two years before the actual trial took place. Uh, but prior to that indictment was the actions of the government to scuttle business. We briefly touched on that in the city of Philadelphia, where, again, documented evidence, uh, corporate records show that uh, both Philly, the Philadelphia Police Department, and the Philadelphia Office of the Inspector General, we were in contract negotiations with them. I have all that documentation. Uh, before the government... Uh, called it had to be somewhere around the end of 2008 beginning of 2009 the first quarter of 2009 uh, specifically January or February 2009 is when 
the inspector general's office's secretary told me that she had received a call from the uh, assistant U.S. attorney here in Colorado. Presumably, that's obviously Matthew Kirsch, who was over the case and told him an indictment was coming. Uh, when you think about our case, the government was trying to marginalize our software and say that we were just, we didn't really have software. We were just out there defrauding staffing companies. Uh, and because we had not paid a number of debts uh, to staffing companies, the government's uh, scheme was to use our failure to pay debt against us and to create a crime out of it. So the motivation for him calling the Philadelphia uh, Office of the Inspector General and to scuttle that business was to make sure we couldn't pay our debts and so he could use that as a tool and a sword in front of a jury to destroy us to say we had you just went out and created this debt didn't pay anybody because you were actually running a scheme and so if obviously if we're doing business with the city of Philadelphia his his whole theory of his case just completely goes to pot so he had to uh, scuttle the business with Philadelphia and, and get rid of and you should see some of the FBI interviews and stuff like that and how it went uh, some of the stuff was very favorable not only from the deputy mayor of justice and public safety at the time but also uh, the head of IT director of information technology from the city of Philadelphia but you can tell they started to uh, uh, the deputy mayor just kind of disappeared he didn't want to be involved and then if you listen to the change in tone of the director of IT from Philadelphia. And that's why it's important that people, the story is told and that people actually see the documents so they can know we didn't defraud anybody. We weren't running a front organization company to defraud staffing companies. We had viable software as said by members of law enforcement uh, that we were pursuing state and local contracts and all of which would have paid our debt. So that's where we're actually, uh, headed next and then obviously some months thereafter uh we were indicted after he scuttled our business in philadelphia that's a question for me if you're in negotiations for contracts that is a complete contradiction of the government's theory of a case so i'm knowing you're in talks with the inspector general of philadelphia as well as the, the police department. If I'm in talks with law enforcement, as high as the Inspector General's office and the, the, the Philadelphia PD, it buries the case. The case is dismantled. There is no case. With that, with that alone, there is no case. So when, hold on, you're doing something and it's clear you're doing something right and legal. But in order to bury you, I'm going to cancel negotiations to destroy you? Absolutely. And you got to remember, we had customers 
Dr. Michael Brown, Southeast Missouri State University at the master's program using the software, right, to teach his, his, his criminal investigations, case management, level one and level two. Five other uh, law enforcement agencies using the smaller version uh, of the software. We had customers, right? So they knew it was not a fraud. So they need to keep that out of the evidence of the jury. So when they consider, you know, is this a fraud? No, you got sales. You got sales of actual customers here using your software. And, and now we talked about the government said an indictment was coming. Now listen to his indictment. The indictment stated that we, the IRP5, had committed mail and wire fraud by making false representations, quote, false representations about current, quote, current or impending contracts with large government agencies. See, that that was, you understand, that was, the, that's what he, that's the card he was playing. So if we actually, so he said we couldn't, Oh, you actually have a current or impending contract with a large federal agency like the city of Philadelphia, the Philadelphia Police Department and the inspector general's office. He can't make that statement if we land that contract because sure. he says, well, you're lying about having a current. We never did. But uh, to be able to do that, you have to scuttle the business because the indictment becomes moved completely. No, it becomes completely null and void. Because he can't say false representations about current impending contracts were made with a large government agency when we had a large government contract with the city of Philadelphia. And during that time, they did not have the time to figure out another theory on the case because that contract issue was the second theory on their case. We were months away from hitting the statute of limitations at that time. So they had to make sure that when they went to grand jury again, they had an indictment because there was no going back from there. It's unbelievable. So you see the actual underhanded scheme of the government we've got to get an indictment on these guys as quickly as possible we've we've uh we've created this theory manufactured this theory of a crime of mail and wire fraud that they they misrepresented about having a current or impending contract and so he had to scuttle the business with philadelphia that's that's how sinister and insidious this whole thing turned out to be when you look at the evidence the indictment is a complete fraud uh given even what was going on with the city of philadelphia and before so it just completely exposes the government for being uh being a complete fraud in this case and in that second indictment there was one witness which was an fbi agent who when asked by the grand jury do you have evidence to this effect? And he said, yes, I do, but I didn't bring it today. And they still indicted. I, it's crazy. Yeah, so that's this is what we're dealing with with regards. And that's that's why we, we continue to beat the drum because people really need to understand uh, what was going on in this case. And obviously, after he scuttled the business in early January or February, of 2009, the next shoe to drop was an indictment in May, and then we actually received notice about the 
indictment in June uh, with FBI agents showing up to our homes with summons for us to appear in court. Uh, and as Judge H. Lee Sarakin put it, who reviewed the entire case, these men were, were indicted, convicted, and imprisoned for failure to pay corporate debts. And the government spun that into a, a crime and a theory that he could spin in front of a jury and make us look like criminals. And sadly, juries are easy, really easy to convince uh, because in reality, they're already on the government side for the most part. And don't forget, you, 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 you failure to pay corporate debts because you scuttle our business, because you're following us around everywhere we go to do marketing business development to sabotage those negotiations so we can't pay our debts. Absolutely. Uh, there was an interview, David, you did uh, some time ago. We're going to play that interview. as you explaining the, uh, some more information about the RP, RP5 case. Uh, we're going to play that right now, and we're going to come back and we're going to talk about it. Let's play the clip. We have, uh, we have uh, David Banks uh, with us now from, again, the FCC prison camp in Florence, Colorado. Uh, David, good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm fine. It's good to be with you. Thank you very much. Uh, we just uh, had a conversation with Gary. Sam was just uh, finishing his comment. Um, in the limited time that we have with you, what is it that you want my audience to understand about what has happened to you as it relates to IRP Solutions? First and foremost, uh, I'd like to say uh, in, in the case of the IRP 6, the government was fully aware of our business activities. Um, mm -hmm. In a proffer we submitted to the government, uh, which provided overwhelming evidence not only of our business activities, investment activities, uh, seeking investment, etc. The government was fully aware of who we were dealing with uh, in the federal government, what agencies we were dealing with. Uh, we went through, uh, we kept weekly and chronicle weekly activity reports of all of our business activity for approximately a year and a half to two years. So we have very detailed information we provided to the government with the proffer on what was going on with our company, including the stuff that was going on with staffing companies. Uh, additional to that, we had a reasonable expectation of revenue at various points between 2002 to 2005, uh, but we kept getting strung along by the government uh, with repeated requests to see the software do more. At some point, we got kind of got caught in a catch-22, and obviously it was a very uh, frustrating situation to be uh, continue, continuing to extend our company in debt uh, in anticipation of the government in uh, engaging in business. They, they had spoke about, at the end of 2003, uh, a $12 million pilot project. So we're working towards these types of goals in 2004, our resource from the NYPD uh, said he anticipated us closing business with the NYPD at the, at the early part of 2004. So we didn't uh, just casually engage the company uh, uh, financially to go, in this to go into debt. We had uh, goals based on what we're being told from the Department of Homeland Security as well as our resources, uh, our resource there at the NYPD. So we made a decision 
to move forward uh, with this business in anticipation of, of $12 million engagement at the end of 2003 and business with uh, the NYPD in the early part of 2004. Well, there you have it. That is some serious information. Uh, you were calling David at that time from the Florence prison camp. Uh, different set of circumstances at that time. But here's one thing you better know. The story, the answers to the injustice have not changed. You have that interview with you, David. You have... The talks that we're having tonight, there's no shift in that conversation, which equals truth. Yeah, truth doesn't shift. It doesn't shift. Give me your thoughts about that interview. At that time, uh, that was an important interview. Well, like you said, at that time, obviously, you're in prison, and you're still fighting for you're still fighting for vindication. You know you've been uh, railroaded, uh, manipulated, and abused by the system, but we still had, as we do today, belief in our company, in our product, and 100% knowledge and truth uh, based on our innocence. And the facts haven't changed. The documentation of our innocence hasn't changed. The documentation of our business, legitimate business activities hasn't changed. And the overall uh, case just has not changed. And as we said, the truth has not changed. My story will not change because it's the truth. The government's story obviously changed many times because they were operating uh, in an area of, uh, of duplicity and, and engaging in unlawful activities and manipulation of the law to bring us and our company down. So the only scheme that was going on here was in the Denver U.S. Attorney's Office, in the federal and as well as the federal courts there in Denver. That's that's where the scheme was. And and Mark, keep in mind that to David's point, we've said here clearly tonight they followed, they knew all our business activities. We submitted a proffer, and yet when we go to trial, and David has the interview from Florence. They know all of this, and then you have the crooked judge, Christine Arguello, that won't allow any of this evidence that the government knew that was on the table, but by not allowing that for the jury to actually see, hey, we had three quotes, and Christine Arguello says, no, we will not allow that information in as evidence. That, that shows the proof. The pr David said the proof is in the truth. Well, our truth, our truth, everyone says now, uh, we speak our truth. Well, we weren't allowed to do that in the court of law because the system, the judge, the U.S. attorney, the AUSA, the, uh, the FBI agents, they were all, even the, uh, uh, the witnesses for the government. We, we, uh, 
They perjured themselves. And all this evidence would not be allowed to show our innocence. Why? Because the, the card, the deck was fixed against us to put us ultimately in prison. Systems rigged. And when you look at after the indictment, the staffing companies were notified of the indictment. One of the staffing companies contacted an FBI office, an agent at the office that wasn't part of the conspiracy. And when they described what happened and how they wanted to be part of the, um, the, the criminal prosecution, they were told by the agent, well, that's not a crime. That's a civil matter. You should Stop take it up that way. Stop contacting. I just wanted to read a comment on Twitter that says the problem is nobody cares until it happens to them and they're talking about wrongful convictions or someone they love. They said Americans are not geared towards concerning themselves with things that don't affect them directly. That is true. Uh, That may be much so. um, But they talk a big game. Well, yeah, I mean, look. The bottom line here, above all else, is that this is not a production. It's not something we're making up, or uh, it's a movie, it's a TV series, and you have cameras, and folks are getting paid for production. It's not the case here. These are real lives that have been really affected. Uh, It makes you nauseous, to be honest with you, that these types of efforts were taken with one purpose in mind. And that was to stop these African-American executives, Italian-American executives, and to shut them down. And I'll tell you what, if you're not careful, it'll make you look at the clock and the calendar to figure out what year is it really that we see the same types of racism targeting that you saw in the 60s. Why is that? Why is that? Samson? Well, I mean, if you really want to get down to the nuts and bolts of it, it's the same thing. It's just been repurposed and repackaged. It's exactly what it is. They put a new face on it. They put a new front on it. It's still the same driving factors. It is still corporate greed it is still the fact of the matter is they just they needed a scapegoat and these five men were it they they basically got you know their cover blown they went in there they tried to go and get something for free they tried to steal some software and now to cover up their actions well now somebody's got to take the fall for it somebody's got to pay somewhere somebody has to be guilty of something so we don't look like we're this Gestapo going in just trying to take what we want because we're the federal government. Now let's know, you know, let's let's conjure up a case. Let's pay whoever we got to pay behind the scenes. Let's do whatever deals we have to do to completely degrade, demoralize, and deconstruct these five executives to the point where now we're going to make them. Now we're going to label them felons. Now we're going to sit there and give them a number rather than a name. Now we're going to put them behind a wall for eight years and say, okay, look, they did time for the crime they committed. Well, there's no crime. And if people would actually use half a brain and look at the evidence that's in front of them, which obviously there's not a, you know, half a brain between, you know, Judge Arguello and the ADA that was working the case at the time. But if you actually look for the truth and see the truth, these men walk away scot-free. Forty collective years would not be taken away from this group. 
families would not have had to go through the heartbreak and the mental anguish, emotional damage that they went through for eight years. Instead, we would have a system in place to prevent the next 9-11, pre prevent the next, you know, whatever, domestic attack. We would have things in place that would actually help better America, but instead, the greed of the system, once again, it just feeds into the machine that, you know, ultimately just steals people's lives. Nick, your thoughts on what you've heard thus far in this show as we wrap this up. Uh, what are your thoughts as to the injustice on this level? I don't know if you ever find a level, but how did you get it here? And it's, how do we change it? It's crazy. This is like a Lifetime movie. And I say that because when I watch Lifetime, I would say this can't actually ever happen. But when you sit here and you hear the guy's story and you know them, you know that it actually did happen. And it's crazy. The only thing that uh, can change it, just like that person said on Twitter, the problem is people have to care. When you get enough people who are concerned and can care, then you can have change. But when people don't care, then how can, how can you make change? Well, because they've been brainwashed to believe. Yeah, that we have the greatest system, which we do not. The system is fine, that it is okay the way it is. There is no need for change. People collectively do not like change, even to an existing debacle of a system that we call the justice system. Um, that is tragic. Well, people want to believe and they want to be great. They want to believe their country is great. And these types of, uh, and they don't really want to look into the, the mirror of truth. This is the truth of the system that we're talking about tonight. And people almost just kind of shun and they kind of put their hands up over their face. I really don't want to see that. I want to believe that our country is great. I want to believe if the government just brings a case of, if you're convicted, I want to believe that you must have committed a crime because we have the greatest system in the world. You had to commit the crime. There's no way that our system would do this to you. And if, if somebody did something wrong, the system would correct, would correct that injustice. Simply not true. Simply not true. Absolutely right. And uh, I'll tell you what, uh, uh, this is going to continue uh, on this show. Uh, it is our job to bring to the attention of our listeners uh, the injustice that is suffered by citizens in this country. Remember the IRP5, David Banks, Demetrius Harper, Kendrick Barnes, Dave Zerpolo, and Clinton Stewart. These are real men whose lives have been affected in a very serious way. Uh, it is our job as an advocate to speak out against that which has happened, to uncover injustice wherever we see it, wherever we find it, to the people who were part of this corruption. Federal Judge Christine Arguello, John Walsh, U.S. Attorney at the time, Assistant U.S. Attorney Matthew Kirsch, uh, all those that played a role here, uh, justice will be found. Uh, it is our job not to tire or to quit, but it is to expose the corruption wherever it is located, and we will continue to do just that. Ladies and gentlemen, tune in to our show next week. We continue this series, and as David alluded to earlier, we now begin to walk 
to the trial. What happened the day you entered court? What happened just days prior to that uh, where the appointed attorneys were fired because of a failure to act type of a situation? We're dealing with all of that as this journey on the steps of injustice continues. This is AJC Radio. Until next time, good night. You're broken down and tired of living life on the merry-go-round. And you can't find a fighter, but I see it in you, so we can walk it out. Move mountains, we can walk it out and move mountains. And I'll rise up, I'll rise like the day, I'll rise up, I'll rise unafraid, I'll rise up, and I'll do it a thousand eight times again. And I'll rise up, I like the waves, I'll rise up, in spite of the ache, I'll rise up, and I'll do Silence is quiet, and it feels like it's getting hard to breathe. And I know you feel like dying, but I promise we would take the world to its feet. Move, I won't bring it to its feet. Thousand times again